today on Edge Effects. We're very much arguing for more history. What we would love to see on our own campus even is campus itself being viewed as a historic site and our students being able to study American history from the perspective of their own campus. Sociologist Jeff Jackson and historian Chuck Ross join us to discuss the effort they're leading to uncover the braided history of slavery and the University of Mississippi and to transform an institution that sprouted up in the heart of cotton country, secession, and the domestic slave trade into a leader in understanding the root of the nation's inequalities and in creating a more just world. I'm Brian Hamilton, and this is Edge Effects. All right, good morning, Dr. Jackson and Dr. Ross. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Good morning. Appreciate it. I'd love it if we could just start out by, uh, if you could sketch out the origins of the group you're co-chairing down there. How did it come to be? And, and what led you both, you know, you're, neither of you are primarily historians of the 19th century South. And what led you both to get involved? Good question, Chuck. You want to take that one? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to try to put it in, in some context. Yeah. In 2012, following the re-election of Barack Obama, we had an incident on our campus in which uh, students who had a difference of opinion around those political candidates, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, spilled out during election night. It was a situation where it was very, very contentious. Um, As a result of that, um, the chancellor convened a couple of committees, one to look at the overall climate on our campus, another looked at the context of what was going on on our campus, and, and subsequently they decided that there needed to be kind of more research looking at just really kind of history of race on our campus or anything faculty wanted to do to contribute uh, to examining all of the kind of complexities that, you know, have really kind of characterized our institution. So Jeff and I talked and a couple other folk, Dr. Kirsten Dillinger, who's the chair of sociology and anthropology, Dr. Joe Ward, who at the time was chair of the history department and hey let's take it let's see if we can take advantage of um, these resources and so we decided to convey a kind of reading group in which we would look at maybe the connection the university had with slavery one of the best ways to kind of get us going was this great book that had just been published by Craig Stephen Wilder called uh, Ebony and Ivy and uh, so we were able to use uh, some of those startup funds that have been designated to purchase books. We had a lot of um, interest from a wide array of faculty, and Jeff can give the specifics on that. Probably 40 or plus people asked for books. We got the book. That was more than that. We began, yeah, yeah, there may have been even a few more than that. We read, we, we disseminated the book, um, we came together, we discussed it. Then we went a step further. We brought the Craig Stephen Wilder to campus, mm-hmm. um, and he came, uh, spoke to our small reading group. Um, he gave a public lecture that evening. Uh, he rode back to Memphis where Jeff and I dropped him off, and he gave us some more really kind of great ideas about what we should kind of do. Um, and so from there, we decided to turn his reading group into a research group. Hmm. Uh, and subsequently from there, um, it's really a role in which we have been able to get uh, resources. We've hired graduate students. We've had a number of meetings. We brought in experts from a wide array of perspectives that examine slavery and other institutions. Uh, we've 
become involved with the University of Virginia. They have a consortium of schools that are all connected. I'll let Jeff talk a little bit more about in detail with that. Jeff and I went to Harvard uh, this past spring, and it was a great conference. Uh, we've got some future things that we're beginning to plan. So all of this really has just kind of uh, snowballed into something that's been a very, very positive. Our group is made up of a wide array of individuals from various disciplines. They're not only just faculty members. We've got staff people. We've got people that uh, work in a library. We have graduate students that are, are playing a role in, in many of the things we're doing. We have administrators that have been supportive. So it's been a very, very, very positive thing. We've got some, some, some great plans in terms of things that we want to kind of do in terms of looking at the university's involvement with slavery from artifacts that may be potentially found on the grounds of the university where we're doing there's a dig that's been taking place in Roanoke William Faulkner's home uh, and looking at the relationship that Faulkner had with slavery we've got a conference coming up that's going to address that uh, we're looking at trying to position ourselves to do something in uh, 2019 when ideally the United States of America is going to begin to uh, recognize and acknowledge the anniversary, the foreign anniversary of Africans arriving uh, in America. And so we, we, we got a lot of things that we've just been we're working on. I'll let Jeff plug in any gaps that I left that I have open. That was a, no, no, that's a pretty good story. See, Chuck's a historian, so he... he... <laughs> <laughs> he goes, he tells the whole story. Uh, the, the only thing I might add is that, you know, I think the, the context that, that Chuck refers to is really important is that um, particularly on our campus, we, we have this kind of ongoing cycle of racist incidents that occur and the university then tries to figure out, well, why do these things happen and <laughs> acts oftentimes a little more surprised than it should being that these things happen on most college campuses, but particularly yeah. here at the University of Mississippi with our history of white supremacy and our, our history as being a, a place that hasn't always been hospitable to African-American students. Chuck and I have been involved over the years on this. Uh, I think actually we probably first met a long time ago working on Black History Month's committees oh, yeah. year after year. Hmm. Uh, and then the 40th anniversary of Meredith. And then uh, uh, Chuck spearheaded and, and, and was the chair of the 50th commemoration of, of Meredith. Um, this is James Meredith. And so, yeah, the, the uh, 1962, October uh, uh, 1st, 1962, we, we celebrated the 40th in 2002 and the 50th in 2012. And Chuck um, led the committee uh, for that 50th commemoration. So we've um, oftentimes been very kind of excited about opportunities to work on improving race relations here at the University of Mississippi and, and in the South. And at other times we felt kind of burned out mm -hmm. uh, at, at the at the scope of the problem and, and the, the complexity of the issue. And in 2012, after the Barack Obama election, that was one of those times where I think as faculty, we, we felt like we needed to do more and so we were having lunch, and it was actually an NPR story or public radio somewhere where we heard Craig Stephen Wilder talking about his book, Ebony and Ivy. And we were sitting down at lunch and said, well, why don't we, you know, why haven't we done a good job of telling our own story with regard to slavery? And that's a story that we should all know, mm -hmm. and yet we don't. And so Chuck said, well, let me call him. <laughs> and he called the Craig up on the phone, and he was very hospitable and wanted to come down. We bought books. We thought maybe we'd get 15, 20 faculty who might mm -hmm. be interested in joining this reading group. I think we had 55 wow. um, when all was said and done, including people in the administration who were very interested in kind of looking at the opportunities there. And after reading the book and seeing 
what a pivotal role that slavery played in the history of American universities and colleges. We saw the, it was like a green light. We just, hmm. we everyone who was part of that reading group kind of unanimously agreed that we need to continue this and turn it into some sort of working group or research group. And uh, that's that's what led to the formation of this group. We, we currently have about 45 faculty and grad student and, and uh, administration folks who are part of the group. And any any particular week that we meet, uh, uh, we'll, we'll usually have 25, 30 people there and working on different projects now that, uh, that, that we kind of got underway, all of which have largely snowballed, which at times feels a little daunting to Chuck and I who <laughs> are trying to keep <laughs> it going. And, and we, we really are in the, in the mode right now where we're trying to raise money. And we've had some success on that so far, trying to get some uh, donations to help support this research, and we have a lot of projects uh, that we're hoping to be able to pull off once we once we garner that support. That's great. Well, I'd love to get into the research in the early days that it is. On your website, you say that we know very little about slavery at the University yeah. of Mississippi at the time of its founding in 1848, uh, and that might strike right. some as surprising because universities produce lots of records and planters often produce lots of records. And what makes it difficult mm-hmm. to get into that story, and what what obstacles are you up against? Well, I think the, the the first thing is that the university, when it was founded, was largely you know this kind of wild west. It was <laughs> it was a boom area, and the you know with the Indian Removal Act, uh, the Choctaw and Chickasaw were being removed, and the white settlers were coming in and buying up the land, and just as quickly importing the enslaved to work on the the cotton plantations that were just growing up like crazy. And mm-hmm. so the university sprang up out of nothing. And uh, the, the, I've been very surprised myself to learn about the lack of records regarding the original construction. We have board of trustee minutes and we have faculty minutes and our head archivist in the special collections has brought out all those original antebellum materials related to the founding uh, of the university. And there are some little small references to local slaveholders renting out their slaves to help build the campus. And we have some of the names of the slaveholders, but we don't have any names of the slaves. And we have very few names of, of any of the enslaved individuals who ended up working on and living on our campus. Uh, because when the census taker would come around in 1850 and then again in 1860, they would record the slaveholder's name, but not the name of the enslaved individual who lived in the same household. Hmm. And and so we have numbers of people, we have age and sex and color uh, recorded for these individuals, but we have very little by way of names. And so one of the things that, that we really wanted to do, and, and Chuck emphasized this pretty strongly from the start, was one of the first things that we should try to do is recover the names of the enslaved individuals who worked and lived on our campus at that time. And uh, we originally had two names that appeared in the faculty minutes, Jane and George, who were mentioned in relation to a a number of campus events. And since that time, uh, we've recovered seven others, mostly from the private letters of the chancellors of the University of Mississippi in their in their in their collections that we've that we have. But but so it's it's amazing how little we actually know. And I think at the time the people who lived, you know, wrote a lot about what the courses were going to be and who the students were going to be and, and, and the the important matters of running a university. And I think it was really rarely mentioned, you know, what was going on with the the enslaved labor force that was responsible for building the campus. And so it's kind of like there's this there's this missing 
story, almost an erasure of of this story that, that the white elites at the time didn't think it was really important to write about the details of the enslaved workers who were doing everything. Yeah, that's been one of the more frustrating aspects of it. I think that we may have to be a little bit more uh, creative and try to go a little bit different route. On the one thing that we're we're going to try to maybe work on and um, in the future is reaching out to the local African American community and a lot of different ways, either through black churches or other 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 venues, to try to get maybe their oral history. And I think if we are able to kind of do that, we'll probably get a little bit more information that may give some light on that early history. But it's a it's a it's a kind of frustrating aspect and that the university wasn't very, very meticulous. I'm not sure if records got destroyed, mm-hmm. uh, records got discarded. Um, yeah, all, all of those things are, are possibilities in terms of, um, you know, we talk about that early period from, from 1848 until right to, up to the Civil War. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One dimension of your project, you mentioned interdisciplinarity and you have folks from a lot of different departments, um, but one dimension that makes it, I think, unique from Similar initiatives at other universities is the inclusion of archaeologists. You mentioned the dig at Roanoke mm-hmm. and Faulkner's old property. Um, how did that come to be, and, and, and what have they turned up, and what has it been like to work across those disciplinary bounds between historians and sociologists with archaeologists who are getting, kind of getting their hands dirty? I think it's been one of the more exciting aspects of, of what's been happening here on our campus. And, and just, uh, you know, as a sociologist, I've, I've always found it very interesting to see the different angles of vision that, that these different disciplines have on the question. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think the community engagement angle that Chuck referred to is very important. And one of the, the, the projects that we really hope to get underway is, you know, some sort of local history and genealogy uh, project. And, and we're looking for funding for that and hoping to have kind of annual or semi-annual local history and genealogy fairs. But to coordinate that requires the work of genealogists and people who do interviews, American studies, anthropology, sociology, oral histories. But the archaeology has been very relevant. I mean, basically, you know, I'm a sociologist, and so I look for where the data is. And historians Mm -hmm. look for where the documents are, but that's one part of the, the data on the question. And when, when data is so rare and so scarce, when we talk about the lives of the enslaved, most of these individuals were not able to keep diaries <laughs> or write mm-hmm, down mm-hmm. their stories, which, which now we can read. And, 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 and so the, the fragile traces of their lives are, are, are really, really precious and difficult to come by. And so I think, you know, one of the goals that we have as a group is kind of a data generating project where, you know, archaeologists can dig under the soil and they can find artifacts that are related to the lives of the enslaved. Historians can dig into the archive, right? Community organizers can find out what is part of people's oral histories or, or what kinds of documents might be in their attics and pull all, bring all those materials to bear on the question. In terms of the archaeology, we've been very fortunate to learn more about how our own place in North Mississippi provides a very fertile space with which to look at the remnants of slavery that are just below the surface. And so we're really hoping to do some archaeology on our own campus. And in particular, we're beginning a project at the home of William Faulkner, uh, Roanoke, which was originally uh, an antebellum plantation owned by a man by the name of Robert Shegog. And Shegog had a very large plantation out in the countryside over uh, 80 slaves 
on his cotton plantation there, but he had his city home, his town home here, and, and there were nine enslaved individuals who lived at what becomes Roanoke. And, and so we're, we're doing some archaeology there to try to see what we can find right below the surface and looking at the outbuildings uh, there that'll, I think, provide a lot of clues to, to what, what life was like uh, in North Mississippi at that time. I guess we're digging figuratively and literally. Yeah, <laughs> we're yeah. trying to piece together everything we can find. Uh, and, and really bringing state-of-the-art research methods and technologies to bear on an important question that we need to know much more about and we should know much more about. Great. So in exploring institutional links to slavery, several universities have begun discussions about the names on their buildings. And Yale certainly has received the national headlines, but it's also going on at University of Mississippi, I know. And, and I'd be curious about your thoughts about how those conversations relate to your work. And also, I'm also I guess, generally interested in some of that literal digging you're talking about in how you're thinking about campus buildings differently than maybe Yale is as places within a geography of enslaved people's lives. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well... Jeff and I are also on a, another committee that is been pretty time-consuming. <laughs> that we, that uh, we can't that. necessarily talk publicly about sure. it yet. <laughs> okay, sure thing. Yeah, I understand. Right. Uh, but, but we've had, we've had, some, we've had some very lively, lively discussions. And we've had some, some listening sessions with the public as we have been wrestling with um, issues around context uh, on our campus. And, and, and you're right. I mean, this is something that, is a national phenomenon right now mm-hmm. because it's not simply college campuses. The city of New Orleans is in the midst of a major kind of situation in which they're taking down these monuments that were erected uh, pretty much in, in the 19th century, more early 20th century, that were monuments to B.T. Beauregard and then they had another monument that basically kind of acknowledged and was this uh, monument that was erected after they had this very, very contentious um, incident between Democrats and Republicans, where basically Republicans were just annihilated through violence. Yeah. And this monument was erected as though this was a very, very positive kind of in, uh, incident. <laughs> in the history of the city of New Orleans. And people have been really pushing back in terms of why are you taking these monuments down? Why are you taking Calhoun College's name off of Yale at, at Yale? And uh, look, this is my take on these on these issues. And I want to speak for myself. I'm not necessarily speaking as a committee member, mm-hmm. um, but I am speaking as a historian. And one of the issues that I really have with whether they be Confederate monuments that are scattered all across the South, uh, you can go to almost any town uh, within 82 counties in Mississippi, and you're going to probably find some kind of monument sitting in the middle of town and square uh, to uh, that was erected um, in the late 19th, early 20th century to um, individuals that served in the Confederacy. Here's the problem I have with that. Uh, number one, when those things were created or those things were erected, there was clearly a era of segregation and white supremacy uh, and violence in which African Americans were subjugated to second class uh, citizenship in this country and in this region. And so those things, in essence, were put up when African Americans couldn't vote, had no voice, were being exploited uh, economically. And the fact is, we're at a very, very different stage now in terms of where we are as a society. 
And so to now argue that we have made progress and we are trying to move in a way in which we have more inclusion, but yet you want to keep these vestiges of the past in a way in which they're clear reminders of a time in which we were divided people. So, you know, we don't have colored water fountain signs still up. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, you can use whatever water fountain you want, but we still, you know, we want to recognize that at this time you couldn't, whites had to use one water fountain and blacks had to use another. I mean, that that, that just seems kind of ludicrous. (laughs) And so this idea that these monuments can be in the public and I don't. I'm not arguing that they should be taken down and 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 not placed somewhere. But I think they need to be placed in a place, in a location in which there's a kind of historic component to it, in which if an individual wants to go and view those kind of things, and they can make that kind of mental decision to go and do that. But to ask individuals to go and have to pay a bill or to do something in terms of their license or some kind of legal transaction in Lafayette County mm-hmm. uh, and have to walk by the Confederate monument that sits right in the middle of the square in Oxford. To me, that's the problem. Let's That can be simply moved somewhere to where you now have a choice if that's something that you want to go see. But to ask African-Americans to walk by that while they have to go and make this kind of transaction or do whatever they have to do. To me, you know, that in itself still is a kind of mental position in which it's like, well, listen, black people will be okay. You got to just kind of accept this. This this was a history that's very, very positive for white Southerners. And it's just tough. You just got to take it. Well, no, it doesn't work like that because as a taxpayer and as a person that's a part of society, you got millions and millions of African-Americans that are either mayors or city people, people like myself that work on college campuses, not to mention the number of African-American athletes that are helping these schools in the Deep South make a tremendous amount of money off of football and other sports. Mm Mm-hmm. That, you know, you're saying that they don't have any kind of opinion and and that this is something that is cloaked in tradition. And because it's cloaked in tradition, it can't be touched. Well, we've had a lot of traditions in this country in which we've kind of changed. And so I'm not saying that these things need to be totally um, taken down where they're not put somewhere else. I'm I'm at a point where I'm I'm comfortable with them maybe being relocated. But I do have a real, real problem with those things being in a public space. And in and in some cases I think there are situations where um names on certain kind of buildings need to be fundamentally changed and um put and replaced with other names because of the the history of an individual and what that individual stood for I think is so divisive that I don't think that um uh, that it can be necessarily uh, resolved in any kind of positive way outside of uh, taking that name off of that particular structure. Now, that's my yeah. take on that. Yeah, and I think I think we're living in a in a time really the first generation where where we're asking these questions. You know, in yes. the in, you know civil rights struggle in the '60s and '70s when when Chuck and I were growing up. You know, it, we weren't really prepared to have these kind of conversations, and and there wasn't the intellectual tradition within 
the academy that that provided i think some of the the understanding that we needed to have in terms of anti-racism and 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 understanding the importance of symbols in perpetuating inequalities we're now at that point and and i think it's interesting the the conversations that we're having nationwide about these symbols connected to slavery and connected to the confederacy really it's it's the first time we're having these in an open and on equal terms and related to our own geography here at the University of Mississippi campus, the founding fathers of the university were all slaveholders and and their names are very present on our buildings and the, the monuments connected to the Confederacy, connected to Jim Crow are a part of our campus and always have been. And the University of Mississippi has gone through a very long and difficult process of trying to extricate itself from some of the most egregious examples of these symbols, such as the Confederate battle flag in the stadium and Colonel Rebel, the mascot. But, you know, one thing I think Chuck and I feel is that we we have a lot of work to do in terms of at least creating more of a presence of context that that students, when they walk by the Confederate statue, need to know why that was put there and, and when. That our university history as it related to the Civil War is very important. L.K.C. Lamar was a faculty member here, and he wrote the Articles of Secession for the state of Mississippi. And hmm. in a sense, that's a teachable thing. But in a sense, it also means that when we have Lamar Hall, which I'm sitting in right now as I speak with you, that, that we need to know who L.K.C. Lamar was and what role he played in white supremacy, in slavery, and in the Confederate movement of secession. So we're very much arguing for for more history. And that really, you know, what we would love to see, uh, you know, on our own campus even is the campus itself being viewed as a historic site and, and our students being able to study American history from the perspective of their own campus and perhaps even someday having some sort of campus history museum where you could go through Indian removal and slavery and the Civil War and Reconstruction and Jim Crow and Civil Rights Movement and so on and, and really be able to see how that all played out right here you know, on our own campus. Yeah, what a fantastic idea. Staying on this question of the power of symbols, I'd like to ask about language. I noticed in your most recent report that you use some of the same language that Edward Baptist does in his recent book, The Half Has Never Been Told. You refer to the planters not as planters, but as enslavers. You refer to plantations as slave labor camps. Could you talk a bit about this decision and, and why is language important here? Well, the decision really in that in that first report came from working group members who are using this important newer language to refer to what we used to call plantations and plantation owners, and and, and in many ways those are euphemisms. You know, mm-hmm. uh, our own uh, university historian David Sansing talks about the fact that when you read 19th century documents. And, and we can still see this now in our own research that enslaved individuals were referred to as servants, uh, mm-hmm. as if you know it was somehow a job description. And so a number of historians, including Baptists, I think, have made an, and, and and other slavery scholars have made an important argument that those terms really dull the injustice of of slavery, the institution of slavery, and that we need to think about. Uh, transforming our language as a way to understand that people weren't just slaves because this institution made them that way. It was because there were other groups of people who were actively enacting that institution. They were they were enslavers. They were not just kind of a job title that you would have as as plantation owner or slave owner. That that this was very much an intentional and an active kind of process. And I think hmm. I think that language helps us get a clearer picture of that injustice. Hmm. 
as we put one academic year to bed and look forward to the next one, what's on the horizon for the Slavery Research Group and what other work is underway? Well, we, we got a number of things going on that we're in the final stages of procuring some uh, funding for a project at Roanoke where we're going to hopefully be able to do some pretty awesome archaeology and history devoted to understanding that place on our campus and a way of interpreting the lives of the enslaved who lived there and also the African-American individuals who continued to work there after slavery and, and were very important to Faulkner's life and Faulkner's work. And speaking of interdisciplinarity, you know, one of the ways that we can study our own local place, by the way, is is reading Faulkner, who wrote about Hmm. this fictional county. But in many ways, the stories that he used were part of our our local history. And so that's one project. We're also hoping to begin to do um, internships with students. Hmm. Uh, One of the things we're hoping to do would be to provide opportunities for students to become slavery scholars and slavery interpreters in the growing number of museums and historic sites that are increasingly wanting to tell the story of of the enslaved. Hmm. Uh, We're hoping to become a place where students can come to get that training and be able to tell those stories more effectively. And then we're also hoping to get this community local history and genealogy project going. One of the ideas that we have there working with a local history group is a digital mapping project where we're going to try to invite people to bring in their their family histories and, and locate them on, the, on a digital map. Uh, we're working with computer science here on campus to, to try to do that in a way to to bring all of this into digital media. And that's the way people experience the world now. And so we really want to try to bring the stories of the past to life through through social media. So those are some of the things we're doing in addition to hopefully, you know, continuing to, to do the research that, that we're doing and, and, and keep the group going. That's great. Yeah. yeah, and I think that, you know, maybe down the line, you know, who knows where this is going to go because at this point um, there are a lot of things that are taking place in terms of Georgetown is looking at mm-hmm. its direct relationship um, with slavery. Harvard just had this conference and they have had a couple of things as relates to like their law school and their overall history. Uh, and, and all of these schools from Harvard all the way, probably all the way to the west of the Mississippi have some kind of connection with slavery. Many of these major institutions we have not. Uh, University of Virginia is taking more of a more direct involvement in terms of the president of UVA is convening a commission and, and they're, you know, looking at this um, relationship. Brown, of course, uh, was the first to kind of plant this flag and they created um, this commission and they did a bunch of research and they were able to identify many of these voyages. They have a database. You know, ideally, you know, you would like to see other institutions do this in which the administration kind of embraces this and decides that this is something that's very, very, very positive. And, I mean, if you were to think about it, if you could have collaboration between schools in the Southeastern Conference, schools Mm -hmm. in the ACC, schools uh, in the Ivy League, 
Uh, and you begin to now, we got all these computers and we got all this technology that people are using now. And a lot of the technology to me is a waste of time. Some of this, you know, <laughs> is the chat and, you know, folk on Facebook. And, okay, yeah, that's fine. That's what the technology can do. But <laughs> isn't it a way to also share information to where people now can have a kind of understanding of how we evolved as a country? Yeah. And and so this is, to me, an opportunity for these institutions to share information in a way in which you haven't seen anything really collaborative like this take place because each institution kind of has its own identity. It's got its own alumni. It's got its own board. It's got its own kind of identity. But um, there is a common thread. And, you know, slaves arriving uh, in 1619 in Virginia and all up and down, up in, 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 in Massachusetts and other areas, and then finally being moved over here to the West. If you put, um, use computers to have some kind of a mapping system, now you're going to begin to get maybe a fuller, fresher understanding of what this overall experience was like and how it made our country. You know, part of me feels like that there's a certain kind of, not necessarily, I don't, I'm trying to figure out the right word to use. I don't want to necessarily say apathy, um, but I think there is a kind of concern in terms of where's this information going to go? Where's it going to lead? Hmm. Is it going to lead to African-Americans asking for financial compensation? Right. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, that's the possibility, and I can understand the concern there. But I also think that for many African-Americans in this country, one of the struggles that you have is understanding your history. And it's, it's a struggle that no other group of people in America have to deal with, because unlike just about every other group of people in this country, Everybody came here in very, very different ways. And most of the people that came here came here voluntarily. Mm -hmm. And so they can say, well, my grandmother, great, great, great grandmother, they decided to migrate from Ireland. They decided to migrate from England. They decided to migrate from Sweden and then going and on and on and on and on. All this stuff is handed down. African-Americans, I tease my students all the time, you know, they start talking about they came from Chicago. You're not from Chicago. You're probably from somewhere <laughs> in West Africa. And so how do you get all of these voyages? How do you get how these people were captured? How do you get how these people were brought to Massachusetts or Virginia and then eventually shipped over land or through a river to Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama? And so, you know, I think that if you can begin to get this information and disseminate it in a way, then I think it's going to help both black and white people have more frank conversations around the issues of race in our, in our country. And I think the only thing that that can do is make us some more positive people in terms of dealing with where we started and how we're going to get to a place in which we have a more inclusive society. And the other thing is it's an educational tool. I mean, because I think that the opportunity to go and get on some kind of database and, and, and get all this information, I think is a very, very positive way to use technology, more so than some kind of Madden video game. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, hey, I understand that that's where a lot of people are in this you know, and, our, and young people in our society, but I think that this is something that we can use. And if we can get some collaboration among uh, these institutions to come together, particularly around 2019, uh, and have some kind of a maybe loose 
agreement or commitment to try and move down the road in the future to be more collaborative, um, I think that that would be a very, very, very positive event. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that Craig Stephen Wilder told us, and I think he made a really effective point, is that this is the kind of work that universities can and should be doing, right? This is the yeah. search for truth, that a truth that has been largely repressed and denied and kind of erased. And so universities should be the ones that, that help us recover and preserve the stories that are in in danger of being lost. I mean, I think I think uh, it's important to recognize that even you know the dwellings and of the enslaved individuals are often you know torn down and you know get destroyed, and so there's a need to preserve them, and that's what universities can do. And I I think one of the I guess the mode that we're in right now, Chuck, you know, is that we're we're kind of in collaboration phase. We're trying to build partnerships, and yeah. uh, we're getting in the car next week, and we're going to go down to New Orleans, and we're visiting uh, the Whitney Plantation there, who's who's mm. doing kind of very innovative work in terms of interpreting the experiences of, of the enslaved. And we have opportunities to work with these institutions like the University of Virginia and the University of Alabama next door is trying to do this. And, and a lot of institutions are trying to do this. And I think if we were to think collaboratively or even globally, right, you think globally, but you, you, you research locally, that we could really start to connect the, the dots and do some pretty amazing things for you know future generations of Americans who want to understand their history better. I'd like to, if, if you're up for it, I invite you to reflect personally on your experience of, of this project. I, I think I'm correct in saying neither of you grew up in Mississippi or even in the South. Is that right? That's true. Yeah. Okay, you're Midwest, you're Milwaukee. Mi yeah. And you're Midwestern transplants. And so uh, how does this work change the way you think about University of Mississippi or Oxford or Lafayette County? How does this affect your connection to this place and your process of making homes there? Well, I'll speak and I'll let Jeff. I mean, Jeff and I have a very interesting history in that we uh, we both grew up in Midwestern towns that are relatively relatively similar in terms of size. We have families that are pretty close in terms of middle class, and our parents uh, having a certain kind of similar amount of education. Uh, he's got a brother. Um, I've got a, a a younger younger brother, so we're both older older brothers who. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had to deal with your younger sibling, and and so it's it's and, and just got a, a little bit larger family than me because they, they, his parents expanded their family. But you know, I mean, we we arrived here in the '90s, and this place was very very different uh, than where what it is where it is now, and that um, a lot of a lot of struggles around getting people to try to move away from tradition. You know, just spent a lot of time trying to convince people to change the state flag, walking through the Grove and passing out information when they had this statewide <laughs> referendum. And, you know, 2001, it, yeah. 2000, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and so we've got a lot invested here. This place is um, a place that can really test your patience. And, you know, Mega Evers was someone that paid the ultimate price. And so I start, you know, I, I really, when I get kind of frustrated and I begin to say, you know, how much more of this do I want to do? Because, Mississippi kind of, and, and even at our at our institution, progress almost takes place around two steps forward, one step back. And so it's mm -hmm. this, you, you go, you're going to have setbacks. And so you, 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 you got to continue to kind of stay relatively positive, and there are going to be some small victories as well. And so um, this is, it's a situation where, on the one hand, we both do race. And so what better place to be? But on the other hand, it's a very, very, very frustrating subject matter to deal with, uh, and it can really test your patience. And so, you know, we this is a place that 
if we continue to kind of push the envelope, I think it has a great amount of potential to serve as one of the real examples in this country of, you know, how people can really move forward. Because when you start talking about being divisive, you know, hey, Alaska, California, Vermont, Wisconsin, Ohio, they all are behind the state of Mississippi. And so, uh, you know, this is a place that um, has had a history um, that's been well-earned, and uh, it's something that we're still grappling with. It's going to continue to take people like us. It's going to be some people that's going to have to come along behind us. It's going to take up the mantle and continue to, to, to push it forward. But I think that Jeff and I, because of our similar backgrounds and, you know, our kind of commitment, and just we, we got a pretty pretty similar kind of personalities in that. Um, and he's probably a little bit more optimistic than me because at times I can get to be where I say, hey, man, you know, I don't know, but it's a situation where we have decided that the only way to make this thing happen and make a change is that people like us are going to have to devote the kind of time, energy, effort that it requires. And so that has been very, very, very helpful uh, in this overall process. Yeah, I think, you know, the other thing thinking about it, Chuck, uh, that you and I have in common is that uh, both of our families were pretty active in trying to change their communities. So, you know, I grew up in Milwaukee during the time of desegregation and my mom you know, I, I grew up in a white family, but my parents uh, adopted children of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And, and my my parents were very involved in kind of those early 70s movements to kind of desegregate Milwaukee public schools. And, you know, I kind of grew up in that environment that you can change the world and you can make it better. And, uh, you know, Chuck's father, you know, was basically responsible for creating the African-American studies program there at Ohio State. And, you know, so we've kind of seen the generations before us have some success in making the world a better place. And, you know, you come to Mississippi and, you know, on the one hand, I think I agree with Chuck that it, it can be difficult. I think it's difficult everywhere. And I think, you know, the racial problems mm-hmm. in Milwaukee are just as serious as the sure. racial problems we have here in, in Oxford, Mississippi. But at the same time, as Chuck and I have done this work, and as we've both worked with students in class, the other thing that you can really see very evident is that students want to do this work. They want to make their hometown, they want to make their campus a better place. And Hmm. they see the opportunity here, right? They see the opportunity. And we all kind of have this idea that wouldn't it be great if (laughs) the University of Mississippi, you know, could be a leader on this issue or that issue. And and I think that kind of is a very attractive idea. It's a very seductive idea. We have to be careful with that idea because I think in, in many respects, we like to think that maybe we're doing a little bit more than we really are. But at the same time, I think it is a driving goal of ours that we could, because of where we live and because of the issues that we've confronted in our history, if we can own that story and incorporate a truthful analysis of that story into our public understanding, then we really can move forward. And and I think before we can talk about repair and reparations, I think we need to understand first. And I think that I think we don't really have a collective deep understanding of the injustice and without that deep understanding of the injustice it's hard to it's hard to talk about the repair but i think i think that's the direction we want to we want to go yeah yeah uh, well just just to wrap things up i uh, and chuck gestured to this but noticeably absent from the list of schools doing work like yours you know there's the ivy league and now there's university of mississippi university of virginia 
there's <laughs> the Midwest is really glaringly absent there, and, and places like Ohio State, where you chuck out your PhD, and and your alma mater, Jeff, the uh, University of Wisconsin in Madison. Why do you think that is? If, if you were to consult with them, for instance, on how to, how they might get started on such a project, what might you tell them? <laughs> it's interesting. Well, you know, I, I, I have to confess, I grew up on Grant Boulevard in Milwaukee, uh-huh. oh, right, yeah. right next to Sherman Park. You know, and, and, and it wasn't until I moved to Mississippi that I understood what those names really meant. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure, about sure. Ulysses S. Grant, and you know, so. My own connection to the Civil War, for example, as a as a Wisconsin resident, you know, was never really impressed upon me. Um, you know, I went to Rufus King High School. We were the generals. You know, we're blue and gold. Mm-hmm. And I never really <laughs> understood, you know, how our, our history is, is linked. And moving to Mississippi, I realized how much of a connection there is between the African-American experience in Milwaukee and the African-American experience in Mississippi. And, you know, I think if you, if you look at, at just understanding the role that universities played in the expansion of the American nation, right, as it moved west. Certainly acknowledging Indian removal is something that has been very present in our conversations as a working group, that, you know, you have this white settler colonialism moving in, pushing Native peoples out and importing African-American labor. And I think while northern states like Wisconsin and Ohio might like to say, well, we never had slavery, yeah. um, that that doesn't mean that Wisconsin and Ohio weren't part of this broader story. And and I think, you know, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think the, the way to go about finding the answer is to try to pinpoint where your institution, if you're a university, you know, is connected to that larger national story of of, of injustice and uh, the fight against injustice. You know, I, I think I think we have um, a lot of misunderstanding about about the Civil War that that we need to have a better better grasp of. I would agree with that. Yeah, well, I, I can't thank you both enough for taking the time to give us this preview of of this kind of deeply important work. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thanks for the thanks for the opportunity to talk with you. No, best of luck to you and your colleagues and your students in, in the years ahead. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll keep you posted. Please do. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks so much. We got a lot of things that are coming up on the horizon, and uh, maybe we'll have an opportunity to talk with you again. Wonderful. That'd be great. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. That was Jeffrey T. Jackson and Charles K. Ross, the co-chairs of the Slavery Research Group at the University of Mississippi. Jeff Jackson is associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology, and Chuck Ross is professor of history and director of the African American Studies Program. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm Brian Hamilton, managing editor of Edge Effects and PhD candidate in the Department of History at Wisconsin. Today's episode was produced by me with special thanks to Carolyn Frywald. The music you're listening to is by Julian Lynch. We'll be back in June with Neil Marr, who will tell us about his brand new book, Apollo in the Age of Aquarius, a cultural and environmental history of the space race. Get that and every episode sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the Edge Effects podcast in the iTunes store. You can also find us on Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And as always, 
Keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net.